This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. So what is on the examination table this episode? Siblings. I'll be looking at sibling relationships and themes in 1989's Pet Cemetery and 1984's Basket Case to talk about how illness and disability can alter and shape sibling relationships. But why discuss siblings at all? Well, I have an older sister, and my disability impacted our relationship in a number of ways. Siblings often, but not always, play a unique role in our lives, being both a peer and a caregiver in many instances. While substantial research is still somewhat sparse, there have been studies that show our siblings are at a greater risk of developing emotional issues anxiety, depression. On the flip side, some report stronger bonds with their siblings with disabilities and develop empathy and a variety of problem solving and life skills that they use moving forward. It's important to recognize both the challenging and the celebratory aspects of the relationship. Now, a couple of things before we get started. There are a number of factors that impact sibling dynamics and relationships. In discussing specific challenges faced by siblings of individuals with disabilities, this isn't attributing blame to either person or persons in that relationship. As with many things, it usually boils down to access of supports and resources when we try to figure out what the root of those challenges are. I also want to issue uh, somewhat of a content warning. I'll be mentioning suicide and the discussion around Pet cemetery and sexual assault in the discussion about Basket Case. These will be incredibly brief mentions, but wanted to give that heads up. So, with all that out of the way, let's get into Pet Cemetery. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is Church all right? Why, Judge? I have no reasons. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the Pet Cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judge? What we did, Lois, was a secret. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts. That's not thought of. Daddy's gonna do something really bad. You're thinking of putting him up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. So let's get into our plot synopsis of Pet Cemetery. The Creed family, Lewis, Rachel, and their children, Ellie and Gage, move from Chicago to rural Ludlow, Maine, after Lewis accepts a job as a physician with the University of Maine. They befriend their neighbor, Jug Crandall, who takes them to an isolated pet cemetery in the forest behind the Creed's new home. Lewis encounters Victor Pascal, a jogger who has been mortally injured by a truck. He warns Lewis about the pet cemetery before dying, calling Lewis by name even though they've never met. That night, Pascal appears to Lewis as a ghost and leads him to the cemetery, warning him not to cross the barrier, because the ground beyond is sour. Lewis awakens, assuming it was a dream, but notices his feet are covered in dirt. During Thanksgiving, the family is gone. Church is run down on the highway. Realizing Ellie will be devastated, Judd takes Lewis beyond the pet cemetery and deep into the woods, where they reach an ancient Micmac burial ground. Judd instructs Lewis to bury the cat and warns him not to tell anyone about what they have done. The next day, a reanimated church returns to the house. He now stinks, moves sluggishly, and is vicious towards Lewis. Judd explains that as a boy, he revived his pet dog and that although the cat might be different, it will save Ellie the grief of losing her pet. Some time later, Gage is killed by a truck along the same highway. Rachel has to be sedated before she can sleep that night. Ellie, too, is shattered by her brother's death. She hopes aloud that God will let Gage come back to them. King's novel made reference to the resurrection of Lazarus, although it's not mentioned in the film. At Gage's funeral, Rachel's father, Irwin, who has never approved of Lewis, blames and curses him for the child's death. He attacks Lewis with his fist and knocks him into Gage's casket, which falls over. As Lewis fights back murderous, murderously, several men struggle to break it up, while the rest of the Creed and Goldman families look on in shock. Judd anticipates that Lewis, uh, that Lewis is considering burying his son in the Micmac ground, although Lewis denies it. Judd believes that introducing Lewis to the ritual ground aroused the malevolent forces present there, which causes Gage's death. He tells him the story of a local man named Bill Baderman, who buried his son, Timmy, in the Micmac ground after he was killed in World War II. Timmy returned as a malevolent zombie, terrifying the townsfolk. A group of men, including Judd, tried to destroy Timmy by lighting the Baderman house on fire, only for Bill to perish with his son. Judd insists that the burial ground is evil, and Lewis must not bury his son there. After the funeral, Rachel and Ellie leave for Chicago while Lewis remains home. Despite Pascal and Judd's 
mornings, Lewis exhumes his son's body and buries him at the ritual site. In Chicago, Pascal appears to Ellie in a dream. He warns the girl that her father is about to do something terrible. Rachel, unnerved by her daughter's dream, calls home. Instead, she reaches Judd, who tells her that Lewis is not home. She decides to return to Maine, much to Judd's alarm. That night, Gage returns home and steals a scalpel from his father's back. He taunts Judd before slicing his Achilles tendon and his mouth. Then he bites Judd's throat, killing him. Rachel returns home and is lured into Judd's house by the voice inspector of her dead sister, Zelda. Suddenly, Zelda's image and voice fade away, and in their place, Rachel finds the scalpel-wielding Gage. In shock and disbelief, Rachel reaches down to hug her son, who kills her. Waking up from his sleep, Lewis notices Gage's muddy footprints in the house and discovers the scalpel's missing. Receiving a phone call from Gage that he has played with Judd and Mommy, he fills three syringes with morphine and heads to Judd's house. Encountering Church, he kills the cat with an injection before entering the house. Gage taunts him further, and Lewis is startled by Rachel's corpse hanged from the attic before Gage attacks him. After a brief battle, Lewis, is, uh, Lewis overpowers Gage and injects him with the morphine syringe. He then lights Judd's house on fire, leaving it to burn as he carries Rachel's body from the fire. Pascal appears and warns Lewis not to make it worse. Yet, the grief-stricken Lewis believes that, because Rachel was not dead as long as Gage was, burying her will work this time. Pascal cries out in frustration and vanishes as Lewis passes through him. At midnight that night, Rachel returns to Lewis. As the couple embrace, Rachel takes a large knife from the counter and slays Lewis, who screams as the film cuts to black. So let's talk about what's not included in this um, synopsis. And that's really what I want to dig into. And that's the relationship between Rachel and her sister, Zelda. So we get a scene. It's after church has been killed and brought back. And the family has come back from Thanksgiving. And it happens all before uh, Gage is killed. And the housekeeper, Missy, has committed suicide. She had mentioned having stomach aches. This was kind of a scene that happened very early on in the film when we were introduced to her, um, but it's discovered to be stomach cancer and unable to live with the pain. She commits suicide. So we are um, on the evening following her funeral, and Ellie, I think, kind of shaken by the experience, because again, you know, this is really, I think, probably her first experience with death um, since Lewis had quote-unquote spared her the grief of losing church. So Ellie comes to him and starts asking him about faith and what he believes happens after someone passes away. And having, you know, brought back church from the dead, I think his views have shifted somewhat, and he tells her, yeah, I I think something does happen after you die. I, I have faith in this. Rachel is in the other room and overhears this, and this is kind of a callback to a previous scene where they kind of butted heads. 
against how to approach the topic of death with Ellie. So in that scene, Lewis had very much wanted to kind of take the more clinical approach of death happens. It's something that's inevitable and it's a part of life um, where Rachel wanted to not broach the topic at all and just, you know, have this assurance that, you know, nothing bad would happen. Um, so I think this is more, I, I think that Rachel is seeing uh, a little bit of that change with Lewis. So when they're getting into bed, she tells the story of her sister's death, her sister Zelda. She talks about how she was caring for her sick sister. She was eight years old. Rachel was eight. And her sister was a little bit older. She was caring for her when their parents had gone and uh, went up to her room to feed her. And Zelda started choking and died. And she you know, ran out of the house screaming. The neighbors heard and I think were able to intervene and, you know, do what they needed to do uh, in that situation. But um, it's clearly conveyed as something that's, you know, traumatic and has really kind of stayed with her and really impacted the way that she views death. So upon hearing the story, Lewis is outraged kind of on her behalf and is livid at their parents for um, leaving her at such a young age to take care of her sister. So that's the story that we're uh, laid out uh, regarding Zelda. And so I want to unpack this a little bit and I want to talk about how Zelda is portrayed in this film. So she's stated to have spinal meningitis. Now, one of the, uh, I guess, criticisms of this film, whenever I read anything about it or hear anything about it, one of the things that inevitably comes up are people get in their feelings about, uh, you know, well, this is not how someone with spinal meningitis looks because her appearance is very jarring and almost creature-esque. In a way, her spine is very contorted. She's very gaunt and pale, almost green. Her hair is extremely thin and a little bit greasy and slightly matted, it looks like. It's it's really a, a jarring visual. But she stated to have spinal meningitis. Now, just as kind of a... I'm not going to break down spinal meningitis, but spinal meningitis is and inflammation of the uh, membranes around the spinal cord and brain. This is something that typically occurs in children or kind of young adults, and it can be caused from a virus, bacterial infection, fungal infection, So, and it can vary in severity, um, certain um, kinds of uh, meningitis, uh, depending on how uh, it's contracted, are more fatal, but it's treatable. There are vaccines to kind of curb the ones that are caused by viral infection. I don't think they, I don't think it's for all of the viral 
infection pipes, but you get the gist. This is an illness that is easily treatable and is short-term. This isn't something that you can necessarily live with as an acute illness. Um, depending on severity, like with all illnesses, you may have lasting impacts. Um, severe cases of spinal meningitis, even after the acute infection, there can be brain damage, you can have gangrene, and that can lead to amputation. So a whole slew of things, but all of that boils down to it is nothing at all as is represented in the character of Zelda here. But I actually don't find that at all kind of an issue with, I think, what story is necessarily conveying. And I want to pull up a quote from an article in the New York Times that I found very, very interesting. It's a New York Times article from May 2020, and it was written by Karen Landman, and she is a sibling of an individual with, I think, a developmental disability. She brings in this quote from Avidan Milvisky, a psychotherapist and associate professor of psychology, and the quote is, a child's imagination is much wilder often than reality. That child in their mind is creating these horrific explanations for why their brother is in the hospital or why mom is crying when the doctor calls. So what's interesting about this quote, and one of the things that I think is really important to think about as we unpack this relationship between Rachel and Zelda, is that Rachel is an eight-year-old kid and probably does not have the, I guess, the knowledge base to understand what spinal meningitis is, what that disease is like. There's a further quote, and this is from Emily Hall, who runs an organization for siblings of folks with disabilities, and she kind of goes on to say the following, you know, if you can catch your brother's strep throat, why can't you be able to catch something like spina bifida? So that's really, I think, putting into context how kids often think of illness in particular, but disability in a more general way in relation to their siblings, if not given that kind of knowledge um, and information about what their siblings' condition is. And so, you know, when we're seeing Zelda, she's a very uh, kind of jarring representation, you know, we're viewing that through that lens of an eight-year-old who is scared because she mentions in the story that she's relaying to, to Lewis that she was kind of scared of her sister. And I think that this, you know, this quote kind of encapsulates that perfectly and that, you know, kids are afraid of the unknown. And well, if mom and dad are protecting me from uh, my brother, sister, whatever, uh, when they have a cold, then why can't I catch what's put them in a wheelchair? So I think that we're kind of seeing Zelda through that. So I think the fact that she has this illness is less of the point and more of the point of, you know, there's a sibling with a condition that I don't understand and it's scary. You know, and then you add on the layer 
that she's an eight-year-old that's put in care of this sibling. And that's a pretty tall order, too. And this goes, uh, you know, after Rachel has kind of told the story, Lewis goes off on the parents saying, you know, you shouldn't have been left alone with her because you didn't know what you were doing. You were eight years old. Your sister was incredibly sick. And that was a horrible, horrible position for you to be in. No wonder this is so scary to you. And so it's a very interesting thing that then we start to examine what Rachel's role was in her sister's care because she does mention that this wasn't the first time that she had been left to care for her sister, to feed her sister. And so that's that's a pretty weighty task to put on someone so young. And so in this article, there's also uh, the mention of the term parentification. And parentification is basically just, you know, a lot of these kind of caregiving uh, responsibilities being put on the shoulders of the siblings, and particularly younger siblings. This is something that is often referenced in terms of siblings of individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities, because you're talking about lifelong conditions and often ones that need additional supports. So, you know, they're taking on some pretty big tasks at young age. So it's, I I think, a term that really does apply here with Rachel's experience, you know, having to take on some duties that um, she probably wasn't really necessarily equipped for. But it's something that we see in the disability community. Another aspect of the relationship between Rachel and Zelda that I also find very interesting is that Rachel never talks about her sister. There's no photos. There's no, you know, mention of Zelda outside of the story. So we really only know Zelda in the context of being, you know, this sick girl. And even in scenes where Rachel is around her family, that's not something that, you know, we see you know, there's not like, um, you know, when we get the shots of Rachel, this, the little moments of Rachel when she's back home with her parents in Chicago, you know, it's not like there's a scene where they sit down and they talk about Zelda and I don't know. It's just something that really stands out to me because it doesn't really seem like they had a relationship. Now, in the remake, one thing that we do see is that there is a photo of Zelda that Rachel has tucked away in a book. And it's an interesting moment because I think it gives a level of humanity to Zelda. You know, we see her as sister and not just the sick kid that is kind of locked up in this room, hidden away. And so it feels to me that Zelda and Rachel never really had the opportunity to have a relationship. And this is kind of the only element to me that is, I wish was a little bit more fleshed out because 
Rachel talks about when she's, you know, going through the story with Lewis, she talks about how, you know, she wanted Zelda dead. She hated Zelda. But we're not given, I think, enough to understand if, you know, they were just literally siblings that didn't get along, you know, because that happens. Or if this was connected to the disability in some way, shape, or form. You know, if Rachel had become resentful of having to care for her sister, if, you know, she hated the fact that perhaps Zelda was getting more attention from their parents because she was sick. And I think that this is really the only time that, you know, the fact that they're using spinal meningitis as the illness in question just is weird because it's a very short illness. Um, again, it can have residual impacts to your health if you've had it recovered for sure, but most people have it, are treated, and make a recovery within two weeks. So it the way that the story is presented and the way that it's kind of cruxed in the film, I think it just feels like this is something that's She's been ill for such a long time. If you know enough about spinal meningitis, then it just is kind of a weird thing. And that's really the only time that it kind of just doesn't mesh. Because the film kind of, I think, wants to have it both ways. It wants to not really pinpoint this background, um, this context for the relationship, and put it all on this illness, but we're not really given enough to connect any dots. And I think what makes that stand out in particular is that, you know, obviously in this film we have another kind of sibling relationship where death factors in, and that's Ellie and Gage. Um, when Gage dies, Ellie is devastated. She has pictures of Gage with her, and she's, you know, she wants Gage back. Um, you know, it's the complete opposite of Rachel, you know, saying, I was glad that Zelda was dead. I hated her, where Ellie is just, like, beyond beside herself with the loss of her brother. And, you know, again, it goes back to the fact that there's nothing connecting us to Zelda outside of those moments that are kind of filtered through a young Rachel. So it's an interesting relationship, and I think it touches on a lot of uh, aspects that are relevant to the disability community, even though, like I said, spinal meningitis, short-term illness, um, I think there's a lot of carryover. And it's been a while since I've read the book, but I want to say that the book doesn't really go that much more into depth with the relationship. But I think it creates a good bit of conversation in terms of how those kind of aspects of life can really shape a sibling relationship. I think it also makes me think of the iconic line from this film sometimes dead is better and even though when this is stated it's it comes back um i think a couple of times in the film but it's 
first stated when Judd is telling Lewis the story of the Batermans. And, you know, it's really in the context of, you know, bringing someone back. You know, sometimes it's best to leave the dead dead. But as we've talked about in previous episodes, it evokes kind of these uh, thoughts of, you know, is this also perhaps commenting on value of life? Because you have Rachel saying, you know, I was glad that my sister was dead. And you can take that in a lot of different ways. A lot of individuals that, let's say, are caregivers for um, you know, even older loved ones um, that are dealing with impacts of aging or um, Alzheimer's, dementia, whatever the case may be, anyone with a chronic condition, the whole spectrum there, particularly illnesses and conditions where, you know, your loved one is going through a lot of pain and it's really kind of altering the person um, that you know. A lot of individuals experience this sense of, you know, at least my loved one isn't suffering anymore when they pass. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that. And, you know, the sometimes dead is better, it evokes that idea to me. It's, you know, when someone is suffering and sick and they pass, in order to feel better, ourselves, we say, well, you know, they've gone to a better place. You know, sometimes dead is better. And it just strikes me that, you know, Rachel being so young probably was dealing with all these really traumatic uh, kind of events that were bringing up all of these really intense and really terribly uh, complex emotions. And you know, maybe she didn't hate her sister. Um, maybe she hated what her sister had become. Um, and she resented her sister for having to take care of her and not being able to go out and play with the neighbors and her friends. It just strikes me that maybe this concept of, you know, maybe Zelda was better off dead because she was so sick and in pain that, you know, is something that Rachel has really kind of committed to her core to help process some of that guilt. So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack with that relationship. So that's kind of where I want to wrap it up for Pet Cemetery. There's a lot to discuss, um, but I now want to switch gears to 1982's Basket Case. What is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? What's in the basket? Easter eggs? What's in the basket? Clothes. What's in the basket? What's in the basket? My brother. What's in the basket? Open it, if you dare. Basket case. 
Wayne Bradley arrives in New York City with a locked wicker basket. After he gets a room at a cheap hotel, the contents of the basket are finally revealed. In it lives his deformed conjoined twin brother, Belial. Although conjoined at birth, the twins were surgically separated at an early age against their will, and Belial deeply resents being cut off from his normal-looking brother. As the twins seek revenge against the doctors responsible for their separation, Dwayne befriends a nurse, Sharon. Jealous, Belial attacks and kills her when he becomes frustrated with his inability to rape her. Enraged at his brother for his actions, Dwayne attempts to kill Belial, which results in the two brothers falling from a hotel window. So, that is our plot synopsis. Um, and, you know, I'm going to uh, quote the term uh, that I think I used in describing Dr. Giggles, which is it's kind of a tiramisu of what the fuckness. I remember um, watching this, I think it was in middle school. Um, a friend and I, um, I was staying over at a friend's house and we made the trip to the video store. And making a trip to a video store growing up um, was kind of a big deal because there wasn't one that was super nearby. I grew up in farmland, and so if you really wanted to go to a video store, there was a gas station that had, like, a wall of videos. Um, so if you wanted something that was kind of, you know, the most current releases or whatever, um, those were available. But if you wanted to get something a little bit different, you had to travel for it. And so whenever it was kind of sleepover time, it was time to make that trip. And... So I remember we wanted to grab, uh, you know, looking through the stacks and trying to find something that looked, that we hadn't seen, something that looked, you know, different and a little bit, a little bit uh, kind of weird and scary. And we picked this and I honestly really like it. Um, so I just want to kind of get that out in case it doesn't sound like I go a little bit hard in some elements of the film. I do kind of like it. It's so schlocky and ridiculous and um, kind of amazing in that. So I'm I'm pretty pumped uh, to talk a little bit about it. So obviously I want to talk a lot about the relationship between Belial and Dwayne. So as the plot synopsis covers these are twins. They were born conjoined, and their mother uh, passed away during the birth. The father was very upset with this, and, um, you know, it should be noted also that when we're talking about conjoined twins, we're talking about basically a flesh mound hanging off the side of one of the twins. So Dwayne is the quote-unquote normal twin. And I say that just because it was the term used in a plot synopsis is something that is reiterated in the films. So Belial is kind of attached uh, to Dwayne's side. So they, at a very young age, are, um, you know, they're raised by their father and their aunt with 
their aunt kind of being the primary person in charge and the father uh, when the aunt isn't around because she is kind of protective of them um, you know she is away and he decides to find some doctors that are willing to perform this procedure to separate them so um, they come and they do this kind of rough uh, separation procedure and it's during the scene that is established that you know no risk will really come to Duane because when we talk about conjoined twins you know we've I think have probably read stories or seen um, kind of uh, specials on TV whatever the case may be where you have conjoined twins that are talking about their experience and oftentimes you know it's not medically safe or sound for conjoined twins to be separated they share you know perhaps a vital organ or artery vein blood supply that would put you know if not both of them one of them in kind of grave danger if they were to undergo this procedure so um but it's established with Duane and Belial that it's not the case they don't share an organ no real blood supply just tissue and the father wants them separated doesn't really care what happens to Belial because he's just kind of a to him an it a thing and so they separate the brothers and um, as the plot synopsis breaks down um, Dwayne doesn't want to be separated from Belial he's completely fine and he has a connection with his brother in fact they have kind of this telepathic form of communication so you know they're kind of submitted to this procedure without their consent and it's done Belial is kind of extracted from Dwayne's side and thrown away in a trash bag and Dwayne wakes up after the procedure and he can hear Belial communicating to him so he's able to track him down where they have thrown him out and following that the father is killed in kind of retaliation they are then raised by their aunt who is very protective and loving of them she passes away and then Dwayne becomes primary caregiver and that kind of takes us into where we jumpstart our film so these men are now grown and are out seeking revenge on the doctors that are have you know that did this procedure to them as children let's dig in to Dwayne and Belial as adults because we've learned a little bit about uh, kind of their background and how they grew up at this point they're essentially orphaned again mom died during childbirth father was killed and aunt passed away um, I think just from natural causes but because the aunt raised Belial and Dwayne Dwayne was never um, put in the position of being you know the sole caregiver you know it's kind of in 
contrast to what we saw in Pet Cemetery with Rachel. You know, as youth, we're not shown uh, Dwayne you know, feeding Belial or kind of tending to any of Belial's needs in that way. And I mean, they've been separated, so it's not necessarily like physically on me. So there's a little bit more, I think, establishing a different kind of connection between Belial and Dwayne, which is kind of what sets the scene for them as adults. And this is kind of hard to admit, but, you know, the whole sequence with the dad, you know, saying, I don't really care what happens to Belial, I, you know, just as long as Dwayne is normal. That always hits hard. And it's, I mean, this is such a weird movie and obviously not rooted in kind of a sense of realism um, at all, you know, but that sequence in particular made me think of my experience growing up. I mean, I'm not a twin of any sort, but, you know, I do have an older sister and my parents divorced right after I was born because my dad didn't want to have a child with a disability. And he had mentioned that he'd wanted, um, custody of my older sister, but not me. And, you know, something that even I think when I was in first grade, you know, having to go to court, um, while my father was, you know, trying to fight for custody of my older sister, but not me and having to, you know, talk to a judge because, you know, as part of that hearing, I think that the issue that my dad was running up against was, you know, you do have two kids. Why are you necessarily wanting custody of one? And so it was, uh, you know, just the element of not being wanted by a parent based on just being born differently is something that stung. And even though it's kind of heightened in a campy way here, kind of resonated and, and stung a bit. And, you know, of course, I had my mom and my mom was a great mom and raised both my sister and I together. So I don't know. It's just, you know, kind of in a, a film that, again, really kind of just on a different level to kind of have something like that really hit hard was a, a surprise because I, I don't think it, I don't think it had really kind of sunk in when I had seen it as a kid. You know, I don't think my mind was kind of really piecing apart kind of the more nuanced, uh, if nuance can be even a term uttered in discussion of this film. But it's something that in, you know, watching it to record this, it was something I was like, oh yeah, that, that does kind of sting. But you have Dwayne that is very, I don't want to say loyal, but loves his brother and wants to protect him and wants to be a sibling and sees him as family. And so kind of wants to be protective. And so, you know, he goes and he gets him from the trash. And, you know, dad is killed and aunt 
raises them together as brothers. You know, even though I think she raises them, but it's still kind of a situation where they're kind of hidden away, much like Zelda in Pet Cemetery. It's kind of an ongoing theme with this episode as well. You know, individuals that are kind of hidden away from the public by their families. So, you know, that was just something that I found really interesting. And I think as we look at the family dynamics, it obviously plays, I think, a lot into how Dwayne has kind of this sort of reverence for his brother. We see that Dwayne has kind of come into a caregiving role for Belial, making sure that he has food to eat and things like that. And one of the things that I mentioned in the intro is that, especially in regards to intellectual and developmental disabilities and chronic conditions, um, chronic illnesses, you will see siblings more often take on these caregiving roles as they age, their siblings age. Because that's kind of the, I don't want to say circle of life, but, you know, when you think about kind of the, for lack of a better term, the pipeline of care, you know, you have your parents when you are a child, your parents, your guardians care for you. And then, you know, as you get older, you become an adult, you find a partner or a spouse. And as you age, you know, your partner or your spouse will uh, care for you as, you know, you grow old and our natural uh, progression of life uh, proceeds. And then, um, you know, perhaps uh, your children will provide care for you at that point as well. But the trajectory for individuals with disabilities is different. As I've said before, and, you know, I think it bears repeating, the disability experience is not a monolith. Obviously, lots of folks with disabilities are married and have families, but, again, not necessarily the trajectory for for others, um, and that's where siblings can play a crucial part in kind of our care as we get older. So just wanted to kind of bring that up, especially because that seems very much the role that uh, Dwayne has kind of taken on in this situation. I think one thing to also note is a theme that pops up in this film because we are dealing with adult siblings here, but is also kind of played out in the sequels, Basket Case 2 and 3, is kind of the sense of Dwayne wanting to kind of find himself. You know, he has been with his brother since birth, has taken on this caregiver role, but seems to struggle to find an identity outside of that. And so, you know, he's going out and having drinks with you know, the woman that is down the hall from them at this hotel, uh, Casey, who, you know, is really friendly. And Belial has kind of this reaction to him going out and meeting folks 
you know, in the synopsis, it mentions uh, the secretary at one of the doctor's offices that he meets and they kind of strike up a relationship. Belial is insanely jealous of the fact that, you know, Dwayne is going out there and having these connections with folks because he doesn't have that. And I think that one of the things that this hits on is because they've been raised together by their aunt, kind of sheltered away from other people, I think that Dwayne doesn't understand to a certain degree the challenges that Belial is kind of encountering that maybe he he doesn't have to deal with. You know, he can go out there and meet folks and do that, but it's a little bit more challenging for Belial because he's in a basket. So he's also not dealing with, you know, Belial is kind of living with this idea that his parent didn't really see him as human. One of the things that we discover is they're in New York City tracking down these doctors. Uh, one of the main doctors in the procedure, the one that I think did uh, the actual surgery proper, is a veterinarian. Um, because again, the dad was very, I think, desperate to get this uh, surgery done and, you know, no reputable uh, doctor would would do it. So he found a vet that was willing to kind of come in and wield the scalpel. And, you know, that kind of plays into the dehumanizing of individuals with disabilities. Because, again, it was more about getting Belial out of the picture than, you know, doing any harm or, or anything to Dwayne. And so Dwayne doesn't really have to live with that aspect. So you're starting to see kind of that rift and you're seeing Belial kind of act out in ways because he's jealous and wants to be able to live in a world where he can make those connections as well. And that's something that is carried over into the sequels as well. So when we get to Basket Case 2, just to kind of underscore this, it's there lightly in this film, but I think it's really hit hard in Basket Case 2. Following the events of this film, they find themselves uh, being taken in by a woman that has a home of unique individuals like Bilal, and Dwayne finds himself not fitting in there, to a point that he, I think in some misdirected need to find a way to fit in um, somewhere, he tries to sew Belial back on to him. So it's, uh, you know, there are all of these weirdly, I think, important themes that are hit on. The sequels are definitely, I think, bringing in, you know, a lot of influence from Todd Browning's Freaks, um, you know, uh, with there being this community of folks like Belial and, you know, in Basket Case 3, Belial has kids. So, eh, the franchise goes places. 
I find them enjoyable and weird and I think worth a watch. I think um, tones of camp and comedy, this franchise is really, I think, going to be something for you. So I do think I'm going to wrap up our conversation on siblings and Pet Cemetery and Basket Case here. We've talked about a lot. We've talked about challenges of these relationships, particularly for, um, you know, those siblings that may find themselves in that more primary caregiver role. You know, the stress and the isolation and how that impacts that that relationship. We talked about the good aspects of it too. You know, the building of strong relationships, the empathy, all good things. So, and we talked about both of those in terms of basket case. Who would have imagined such a thing? So I do hope that, you know, if you go back and watch these films that maybe listening to this will have you look at these relationships a little bit more closely and maybe take something new from them. Um, that's always an exciting thing. I like to be able to go back and, you know, if I've listened to a podcast about a, a movie or something, go back and watch and be like, oh yeah, I see what they're saying. That's really cool. So I appreciate you listening. Um, as I think I mentioned at the top, I do want to give a shout out to just a couple of other movies. Now, if you're interested in other films that are kind of examining different sibling relationships that are kind of connected to disability themes. I'm going to rattle off three um, that just kind of stick out in my mind. There's a gazillion of them, I think, especially if you're kind of going more thematic. And, you know, I think that opens up some different doors. But I wanted to, to name three that I think kind of connect with particularly some of the things that we talked about with this episode. One film to check out is Raw. It's one of the, I think, kind of newer French extremity films, and it's about a pair of sisters that are at a veterinary school. It's uh, kind of a take on a on kind of the cannibalism uh, subgenre, but I think there's some interesting ways that the sibling relationship and how the cannibalism is actually handled and part of the familial structure uh, kind of takes it to a different place and kind of resonates with some of the things that we talked about with this uh, episode in, in Pet Cemetery and Basket Case. Another film that I will shout out is the House of Wax remake. It has the, I think, the good twin, bad twin uh, dynamic that, you know, I think is somewhat infused into Basket Case, although differently. So kind of has some elements there. And the third film that I will uh, kind of... Uh, suggest is the film Excision with Annalyn McCord and Tracy Lords. It's not one I see talked about a whole lot, but it's really, really good. 
And um, I don't, I don't want to spoil it because again, I, I don't see it talked about a, a ton. And I think it's one of those that has the most potential for being spoiled. So I know it's on Amazon Prime now, but you know, do a search, seek it out because it's really good. But there is a sibling relationship uh, in it that I think is uh, really powerful. So check that one out as well. So there you go. Not only did we talk about two films, I gave you some suggestions. It's all good. So thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Anatomy of a Scream feed. Because, yeah, this podcast, proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. So not only will you get bodies of horror, but lots of great shows. Development Hell, Horror is So Queer. There's new shows coming out as well, which is super exciting. So you definitely want to get in on that. So please subscribe, leave reviews. Helps people find the feed, find shows, all wonderful things. And I know I have to do the ask with each episode, but it really does help out folks in being able to find Anatomy of a Scream and the awesome shows. If you want to reach out to me, I can be found on Twitter at Nicole, and that's Nicole with an H, in DC, or you can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. So thank you again for listening, and until next time. Scream Pod Squad.